be from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, that's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. That can be found on page 998 in the Pubac Bible. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's great to see you this evening. Um, there, there was a digital parenting seminar, as you heard about this morning. Uh, Brother Chad Lambin was with us and brought our lesson to us in our worship hour this morning. But yesterday, he had a three-hour seminar uh, here at the building. And if you would like a recording of that, maybe you were present or maybe you weren't able to be here for that, uh, those recordings will be made available. There's a list out here in the foyer just uh, for the AV room. And just write down who you are and whether you'd like an audio or video recording, and they can produce that for you. They can make a DVD or they can get you just an audio file or a CD or a thumb drive of, a, of the audio. They said if you want a thumb drive of the, DV, of the video, you need to bring like a really big thumb drive because they don't, they, they said it's a massive file. So it needs to be like 128 gigabytes or bigger. So, uh, but they can make you a DVD if you'd like that. So please take advantage of that. Uh, Brother Chad had some excellent things to say yesterday and this morning as well about all of us who are parents and how we think about uh, our kids and the media that they're exposed to and setting some very intentional parameters and limits so that our, our kids um, can grow up in a way that pleases Jesus Christ and, and, and not exposed unnecessarily uh, to things that, that really God wouldn't want anybody to be exposed to. And so had a lot of really good things, a lot of resources. Chad also said, and he told me to tell you, if you're a parent or, or a grandparent and you've got questions about maybe some of the issues he's brought up, uh, he would love to interact with you. And so just go on to his website, digitalparentingworkshop.com, and you can find his contact information there. He said he'd love to be able to answer questions or maybe as you do your inventory of devices in your home and you find something that you're, you're kind of disturbed by and how do I handle this? Uh, Chad said he'd love to be able to visit with you and, and answer any questions that you might have. So he's made himself available in that way. Take advantage of that if you need that. Open your Bibles, if you would, tonight to Titus chapter 2 and look at verses 11 through 15. We have been preaching our way through Titus on Sunday nights. Titus is all about living up to your faith. It's about living what you really believe. It's about living up to your faith in the home, Titus chapter 1. It talks about elders and it talks about standing for what's right and making sure that the gospel is being preached. It also talks about living up to the faith, living up to your faith in your home, Titus chapter two, in the church, chapter one, in your home, chapter two. And as we talked about this last time, we talked about how every group in the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, even slaves or servants are addressed in Titus two verses one through 10. And then Titus chapter 3 deals with living up to your faith in the world, in the community around us. The people that live around us need to see Jesus in us. They need to see something of the gospel being lived in our lives. We're going to focus our attention tonight on Titus 2 verses 11 through 15. Let's read these verses briefly. Titus 2 beginning in verse 11. We'll make some observations. It begins in Titus 2 verse 11, for, and incidentally, it begins with the word for that connects to everything he's just said in verses 1 through 10. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Couple of observations. Number one, there are bookends to Titus chapter two. In Titus chapter two, verse one, Paul says, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper, which are fitting for sound doctrine. Titus, your job is to teach sound, healthy teaching. And then Titus 2 verse 15, the end of the chapter, he says again, exhort and rebuke, declare these things with all authority, let no one despise you. And so the bookends on Titus 2 verse 1, Titus 2 verse 15 had to do with proclaiming and teaching that which is healthy. The church needs to hear healthy teaching constantly. We need a steady diet of that. The whole counsel of God needs to impact our hearts and change our lives. Notice secondly, Titus 2 verses 11 through 15 as we make some initial observations. It has to do with theology. It has to do with what God has done in history, what God continues to do in our lives, and what God will do at the end of time. It has to do with God's work in the world. And notice that this theological passage that deals with God and his greatness and his grace, notice that this comes on the heels of and is precipitated by the word for in Titus 2 verse 11. It comes on the heels of very practical instructions to every group in the church. Here's what that means. Every doctrine, every teaching that you find in the Bible, every time God ever says, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, all of those teachings in Scripture, all the ethical moral statements in Scripture, they are all connected to who God is and what God has done and is doing in the world. That's really important. Because husbands are supposed to love their wives and wives are supposed to love their husbands and their children. Titus chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 tells us. But why? Because of the grace and the mercy and the majesty of God. That's why. Because of what God is doing in the world. That's why we ought to love our families. That's why we ought to be good parents to our kids. That's why we ought to be concerned about things like digital parenting seminars. Because of what God and his grace has done for us. That's why those of us who are older ought to be thinking about our influence on people who are younger than we are. We ought to be thinking about teaching and educating and mentoring and helping them because of the grace of God that has appeared to us. And so Titus 2, 11 through 15 is the underpinning, it's the foundation of why we ought to live up to our faith in the home or in the church or in the world. God's word frequently does this. It always connects every doctrine that you could ever imagine. Whatever doctrine you'd like to talk about, all of it connects to the cross. It connects to what God is doing in the world and how he wants all men to be saved. And he is going to send Jesus one day and all of us are gonna stand before him in judgment. Every Bible doctrine connects to those things. And you need to look for the connection and it is a mistake for us 
as the people of God to teach about practical matters, practical doctrines without making the connection to the cross, without making the connection to the grace of God. It's, it's a mistake for us to do that. To talk to our kids about why it's wrong to lie, it's, it's wrong to tell uh, you know, fabrications and, and things like that. It's, it's wrong to, to not tell the truth. Why not? Because of the grace of God, because of the goodness of God, because of what Jesus has come to do, because of the nature of sin, those kinds of things. That's the Bible answer to the question. Don't just give people an ethical standard without showing them the basis and the underpinnings for it. That's what Titus 2, 11 through 14 especially does. Let's talk about Titus 2, 11 through 14 tonight, especially in our, in our, in our study. I want you to notice that it deals with the past, the present, and the future. Titus 2 verse 11 deals with the past. The grace of God has appeared, past. Titus 2 verse 12, teaching us, training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. The present. And then Titus 2 13 deals with the future, looking for, waiting for the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Past, present, future. God sent Jesus the first time. Now he is teaching us by his grace. And in the future, we're looking forward to the return of Christ. You see that? Titus 2 11, 12, and 13. It's about past, present, and future. And so, as we think about why, why should I love my wife? Why should I love my kids? Why should women uh, love their husbands and love their children? And why should we be sober-minded and self-controlled? Why should we do all these things? Notice, in the first place, this passage tells us, because we're looking back, we're looking back to what God did when he sent Jesus for the first time. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, notice what it says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We're looking back now. I ought to love my wife. I ought to love my kids. I ought to be a, a good citizen in the world. I ought to be a good employee because of the grace of God that has appeared to all men. Notice when you read the Bible, it tells us and reminds us that the grace of God is available it's available to you, it's available to me, it's available to everyone, to all men. You might say it this way, the grace of God is available to all men potentially. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3 verse 16. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, Jesus came so that he might taste death for every person, every man. You know, there are people that teach that Jesus didn't die for everyone. They teach the doctrine of limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect. He only died for those who were going to be saved in the first place. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's grace has appeared to everyone. You've never met a person who is outside of the ability of God and his grace to reach. God wants all men to be saved, all men potentially. And that ought to change the kind of person that you and I are. Not only that, the grace of God is available to no one unconditionally. Grace is a gift and that gift must be appropriated. It must be accepted. It's available to no one unconditionally. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. That's what he wants from you. That's what he wants from me. He wants us to accept and to embrace and to, and to take the gift, the free gift of salvation that he offers, but it's conditional. The Philippian jailer asks in Acts chapter 16 verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they gave him an answer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you may. And they taught him that very hour of the night and he was baptized, he and his whole household. 
it is conditional, the grace of God. And the grace of God, brothers and sisters and friends, this ought to motivate us, this ought to change the way we live. It is available to God's people, to the church that we sang about a little while ago and kids sing, sufficiently. That is to say, when God gives us his grace, it is sufficient for everything we need, everything we'll ever need. His grace takes away all of our sin. His grace provides strength for all of our days. His grace blesses us with everything we need. My grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. When we think about what God did by sending Jesus to this world, the grace of God has appeared and it has come into this world and it brings salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from slavery, salvation that brings us into a relationship with God. That's motivating. God intends for it to be so. You and I ought to think more about the grace of God and its impact in our lives. Secondly tonight, as you think about what motivates us to live the way we do as Christians, why should we be ethical, moral, good people? Why should we be zealous for good works? Titus 2.14. Secondly, not just because we're looking back at what Jesus has done for us at the cross and how he paid a debt he did not owe, but also secondly, because we're looking up. We're looking at God himself and we're looking at the grace that he's given us. Notice in Titus 2 verse 12, this passage says that the grace of God doesn't just save us, but it instructs us, it trains us, it teaches us. You know, a lot of people want grace to take away their sin. A lot of people want grace to make them clean but they don't necessarily want grace to teach them anything. But God says, not only does my grace provide your salvation past, but it teaches you in the present. And some very specific things in this passage, grace teaches us. In the first place, it teaches us to deny ungodliness. There are a lot of people that live in the world that are basically pretty good people, but they are as ungodly as they can be. Ungodliness means that we live as if God is not really important to us. That's what ungodliness is. You can be a good person. You can be a good old boy. You can live your life. And really, if God doesn't make a difference in your life, if you've got no relationship with God, that is the epitome, the definition of ungodliness. And the Bible tells us, the grace of God tells us, John, you got to deny ungodliness. You've got to renounce it, English Standard Version says. Not only that, we're to deny worldly lusts, worldly lusts, the things that you want to do. You know it's wrong. You know you shouldn't. You know that this is not going to end well, but you do it anyway because it's what you want. God's grace teaches us to renounce that. Things like anger. I was fascinated yesterday. I didn't know this. When Chad was doing the seminar, he talked about how social media, they've done studies and anger is the number one emotion that drives people's posts online. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I don't know why I didn't know that, but I didn't. And so it's interesting though, because when, when the Bible talks about anger, the Bible calls anger a worldly lust. 
Anger in and of itself is not right or wrong. It's an emotion. But when we start to be driven by anger and we start to speak in anger and we type posts in anger and we, we harass people and things like that, those are angry types of responses and they are worldly lusts. And God's grace says, stop it, renounce it. Don't just, don't just say, well, I'm working on this. Put it to death. Grace teaches us to take those worldly lusts, things like lust itself, or things like pride and thinking too much of ourselves or envy of others. Deny those things, God's grace says. And then it teaches us positively, notice there's negative and positive here, put away ungodliness and worldly lusts, but then it says live soberly or self-controlled, ESV has. And notice how many times in Titus chapter two that self-control is brought up. Control yourself, control your emotions, control your impulses. Titus 2 verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. Titus 2 verse 4 and verse 5, younger women are to be self-controlled. Titus 2 verse 6, younger men are to be self-controlled. And all of us now in Titus chapter 2 and verse 12 are to be self-controlled. God's grace teaches us to control ourselves. It teaches us to live righteously. This has to do or upright, some translations have. To be upright means that you treat other people fairly. It means that you don't cheat people. It means that you don't despise people. It means that you don't hold prejudice in your heart. That's what being upright and just means. And God's grace teaches us to live that way. We don't play favorites with people, especially when it comes to matters that have to do with life and and being just and fair. We don't play favorites and we don't take bribes and things like that. We are to live godly in this present age. The word godly has to do with supreme devotion to God. It means that our lives are not just going through the motions of Christianity. We're just, you know, just, just, you know, doing the bare minimum. To be godly means that God really matters to me. He really matters to my heart. He really matters to my life. That's what it means to be godly. And the grace of God instructs us, it teaches us to say no to some things and then to say yes to some other things. You see that? God's grace teaches us and it teaches us repeatedly. And so when you think about the grace of God, don't just think about grace as, you know, it's a wonderful thing that our sins have been removed and that we have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. It's also Grace is telling me that I need to be a different person than I used to be. I can't live the way I used to live before I became a Christian. I can't continue in those kinds of sins and worldly lusts. Why not? Because God's grace teaches me different. It teaches me that I ought to be the kind of person that God wants me to be. I ought to live up to my faith in the present age, looking up and thinking about Jesus and his example. Notice Titus 2 verse 13 now. We've talked about the past, looking back. We've talked about the present, looking up. And now we talk about the future, looking ahead. Titus chapter two, verse 13. There is a statement in Titus two thirteen about the second coming of Christ. That's what the passage deals with, the second coming of Christ. So we've got the first coming in verse 11. And now we've got the second coming in verse 13. You see that? We're talking about theology. We're talking about God's work in the world and it's all being connected to the way we live. The kinds of things that God says are right and wrong, yes and no, do and don't do. All of that's connected to God's work in the world. 
Notice the expectation of the return of Christ. What are we doing right now, Christians? What are we supposed to be doing? We are waiting for the blessed hope and glories of appearing, glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for it. Christians, we're supposed to be waiting for, we're supposed to be looking forward to the return of Christ. You know, sometimes when life becomes troublesome and when, when, when your problems are just all around, you know, we've got songs in our songbook that say things like, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and, and things like that. Farther along, we'll know all about it. And those are all good songs. Those are good sentiments. But I find in the Bible, not only are those sentiments good ones, I find in the Bible that we are supposed to look forward to and we are supposed to long for the day when Jesus returns. We're supposed to be looking forward to and we're supposed to be thinking this way. Today might be the day. Before we get home tonight, that might be the day when Jesus returns. We're waiting for it. We're looking forward to it. This is the way God wants us to live. He wants us to live with that eager expectation. The day has been set in God's mind when Jesus is going to return. Acts 17, 30 and 31, God has appointed a day in his mind when he will judge the world in righteousness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 reminds us that we are saved from wrath and we're looking forward to the return of Jesus from heaven one day. The expectation of his return. Notice this passage talks about the nature of his return. If you've got the King James and the New King James, it probably says something like this, waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. ESV does a little bit better job with this, translating it. ESV says, waiting for our blessed hope, comma, the appearing of glory of our Lord and Savior, great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our premillennial friends, interestingly enough, take the expressions in the New King James and they say, the blessed hope has to do with the rapture of the saints and the glorious appearing has to do with the second coming. I don't know if you knew that or not. They say those are two separate events. No, they're not. They're not two separate events. They are one event. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are one event. There is no secret rapture of the saints that is taught anywhere in Scripture. It's not taught in your New Testament. It's not taught in your Old Testament. The blessed hope of the church is the second coming of Jesus Christ on the last day. One day, the Bible tells us, Jesus is going to appear from heaven in flaming fire. He's going to come with his angels. He's going to come with his saints. And he is going to, he is going to raise all the dead. And those of us who are alive are going to be transformed. We're going to be caught up to meet him, to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says, thus shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. We are waiting for a blessed hope. The fact that Jesus is going to come for us one day. We are waiting for the glorious appearing. And it's the exact same word that you read in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, epiphania, epiphany. And then in verse 13, we're waiting for the second appearance of Jesus Christ, the epiphany of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus. We're going to see him one day. And that's what we're looking forward to, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We sing a song, there's a great day coming, 
You remember the three verses of that song? There's a great day coming. There's a sad day coming because for some people when Jesus returns, it's going to spell their doom. And there's a bright day coming for those who are Christians and those who love the Lord. That's exactly what this verse is talking about, a bright day coming for New Testament Christians. Notice that then Paul focuses in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, on the person who will return. We're waiting for him. We're looking for him. We're expecting him. It's our blessed hope. It's what we're looking forward to. His glorious appearing. Who is he? He is Jesus the Christ. Jesus means God saves. Christ means he is God's anointed. And when we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is his title. And we're waiting for the anointed one who God sent to the cross and who God has now crowned with many crowns and has set him at the right hand of his throne in glory. We're waiting for him to return. Notice the passage calls him our great God and Savior. It is a statement of the deity of Christ. It's a statement of who he is. He's our great God. He is our Savior. And notice as well, it goes on in verse 14 and it says, he gave himself for us. He is our Lord, he is our King, he is our Master, but he is also the one who gave himself for us. He loves you like nobody else has ever loved you before. He cares for you like nobody else will ever care for you. The people who've loved you most in this world don't love you even a tenth of an ounce as much as Jesus loves you because he died for you and he prays for you constantly and he wants a relationship with you more than anything else. He gave himself for us. He went to that cross and endured those nails and the mockery and the spitting. He endured all those things so that you, cannot, you and I could be saved. When we seek to figure out what does God want me to do with my life, we ought to think about the past and the present and the future. We ought to think about God's grace and how it relates to our lives. And then this, number four, after we look ahead in Titus chapter two, verse 14, we ought to look within. We ought to think about who we are. A lot of people talking about identity these days. Who am I? How do I self-identify? This verse tells us how we ought to self-identify. Three statements. Number one, we ought to as Christians self-identify as being redeemed. We are purchased, redeemed by Jesus Christ. You don't belong to you anymore if you're a Christian. I don't belong to me anymore. We are bought with a price. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 18 through 20. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we're redeemed, we're bought from something, from all lawlessness or iniquity. And so as I think about who I am, how should I self-identify? You and I should identify as people who are redeemed, purchased by Jesus Christ, by his blood, from all lawlessness and iniquity. In other words, I don't belong to those things anymore. I'm not a slave to those things anymore. I'm new, I'm different. I'm changed because of what Jesus has done for me. Secondly, how should we identify ourselves? We are purified. Titus 2 verse 14, he has purified us for himself, a precious possession. Some translations have a peculiar people. You know, sometimes Christians are peculiar, but that's not what that word is supposed to mean. The word meant a special people. 
The idea of Titus 2 verse 14 is that you and I, if we're Christians, we are special to God. I love all of your kids, but I love my kids more. They're special to me. And you'd say the same thing about your kids, right? You'd say your kids are more special to you than my kids or anybody else's. That's what God's saying about us. God's saying, I love everybody. I love the whole world, that my grace has been made available to everybody, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. But if you're a Christian, you're special to me. You're a precious possession to me. You belong to me. I have redeemed you and I have purified you. And because I've purified you for myself, you can belong to me. You can be my precious possession. Unless you think, well, that, that just sounds, you know, too high and mighty. No, anybody can become a Christian. That's the point of the passage. Anybody who chooses to can accept the gift and can become part of God's people. That's our plea. Why wouldn't you want to live this way? Why wouldn't you want to put on Christ and to be his precious special possession? That's what he wants for you. And that's what we want for you more than anything else. A special people, the elect of God, Titus chapter one, verse one, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, first Peter chapter two, verse five. And then when we self-identify, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14 one more time. We are to identify as people who are zealous specifically for good works. There are some Christians who are zealous to cause trouble. It should not be that way. There are some Christians who are zealous to start a fight. There are some Christians who are zealous to keep the pot stirred. There are some Christians who are zealous for their favorite sports team or they're zealous for their favorite, uh, their, their favorite movie or, or their favorite subject or their favorite political party or politician. They're zealous for those things, but not Christians that we read about in the New Testament. Christians that we read about in the New Testament are zealous for good works. And now we come back to one of the main themes of Titus, doing good. God has saved us by his grace so that we would get busy in our lives saying no to ungodliness and iniquity and saying, yes, 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 I want more and more good works in my life. He saved us so that we do good. And doing good, as you read Titus 2 verses 1 through 10, has to do with things like self-control. It has to do with things like being mature. It has to do with things like loving our families. It has to do with things like being a very zealous and enthusiastic employee in the workplace. Those are all good works. And he's going to continue talking about good works in Titus chapter 3. God saved you. He saved me, not just so that we could sit on a pew and sing but he saved us so that we could go out into the world and we could be his precious possession and we could be zealous for what's good, for what's right, for what honors God. How do you self-identify? What kinds of things, when people say, who are you? What kinds of things do you say? This passage tells us we're servants of God, we're God's precious people, and we are to be zealous for what's right, for what's good. The grace of God has it changed you? When you think about grace, it's not just all about the cross, although the cross is what makes grace possible. Grace is about not just what God has done, but what he is doing and what he promises to do one day. And all of our lives ought to be lived under the umbrella of God's work and God's grace. That's Titus 2, 11 through 15. Have you put on Christ in baptism? 
Have you made the decision that you need redemption and forgiveness and you need to be delivered from iniquities? Have you made that decision with your life? If you haven't, heaven's invitation is open to you just right now. It's always open, but there's no better time, no better place than right now and right here to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you need to respond and ask for prayers. Whatever your need is, won't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing?